Should we try saying oligodendroglioma five times fast again? You, you, can, you can say it. Let's try it together. Oligodendroglioma. You, you call it oleo? What do you call it? Oleo? Is it oleo? Well, I, don't, is, I thought it was oligo, oligodendroglioma. What is an oligodendrocyte? Oligodendrocyte or oligodendrocyte? Oligo? I don't know. You're the one who has it. Oh, hello there, fellow mortals. Welcome to this episode of Talk Dying to Me. Today I'm sitting down with Ashley Doty. Ashley is many things. She's a daughter and a sister, and she's a really, really great friend. Like the kind of friend who runs by your side for an entire half marathon, just to keep you motivated and make sure you get to the finish line, even though you are much, much slower than her. Speaking from personal experience here, she actually did that for me. She's a palliative care nurse, and let's be honest, palliative care nurses are just about the most wholesome, down-to-earth, rad people you can come by. Also speaking from personal experience, as a palliative care doctor who's worked with Ashley and many other amazing palliative care nurses. Ashley is an Albertan at heart. She has a dog named Kiera, who she loves dearly. She's funny and vibrant and just an all-around gem of a human being. Oh, and one more thing. I have a brain tumor. That's my story. <sighs> yeah, Ashley has a freaking brain tumor. For the record, I asked my fiancé if I could say f***ing brain tumor, and he said probably best not to. But to be clear, f***ing brain tumor is actually a much more appropriate sentiment in this particular circumstance and pretty much any circumstance dealing with serious, potentially life-limiting illness. We call her Monica. Oh, Monica. Yeah. Okay. We call her Monica because she was making me a little a little crazy. Did you get like a label maker? No, like... no, but I, I labeled, and I'll tell you why I labeled her Monica. That That's to come. That's Ashley. And this is her story. A story of her and her brain tumor, Monica. Four years ago, I had this really strangely tired day at work. And to the point where I actually had to have a nap on my last break, which is really unusual for me because when I'm at work, I'm like, I'm on. It's like my, I got my game face on and I'm like very present at work. And I had to have this nap. And I remember just being like, man, I'm just so tired. And I couldn't, couldn't figure out why. And usually I don't think too much of it. And I went home that night and my husband at the time was there and I walked in the house and I was tired and I was frustrated and I walked in and I blew up at him because he hadn't emptied the dishwasher like I'd asked him to. Fair. And I just... And you don't need to have a brain tumor <laughs> and to it's do fair, that. fair, <laughs> but I, I really exploded and he was just like, calm down. Like, why do you always have to come home and be so angry? And I was like, well, I'm just really tired of coming home and this not being done. And I was just like, I was just like fuming mad. I remember being so, so angry, like just like where I had to kind of go, I need to go take the dog for a walk because I'm raging mad. So wives and husbands everywhere yeah. are now like, oh my God, does my spouse have a brain tumor? No. <laughs> like okay, before you all start Googling whether or not your significant other has a brain tumor because of their sometimes irrational reaction to an unloaded dishwasher, just, just stop. Google will tell you that you and everyone you love has cancer. But it was what happened after I went into this like oddly really calm state and I actually called my mom because I felt so bad because I had like, I had gone to like this red zone 
of, of anger. I said, I feel really bad. And I just, I'm like, I just need to talk it out. And I was just really calm with her. And my mom remembers that too. Cause she was like, you were so oddly calm when you called me, but you just said you like exploded. And it was something just didn't feel right though. It was like something was off. So they got in a fight as couples do. She walked it off, called her mom. She apologized when she got home and they made a nice dinner. And then they watched their favorite show in bed. In general, it was a pretty normal, uneventful evening by any standard. We were cuddling in bed and I had the computer in front of me and that's the last thing I remember. And the next kind of full-on memory I have was being at VGH. In the moments between cuddling in bed and waking up at Vancouver General Hospital, Ashley had a major seizure. Her husband thought she was dead. He called 911 and started doing CPR. The ambulance came, the paramedics came, and I was conscious but disinhibited. And so I was quite foul, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, and I do have a vague memory of telling the paramedics that I wasn't going to get on their stretcher, (laughs) which was outside my room, and get off me, don't touch me. If you haven't figured it out by now, this is all very uncharacteristic of Ashley. She's a palliative care nurse, remember? She's kind and patient and understanding. She doesn't routinely drop F-bombs, even when she's talking about her own brain tumor. So the yelling and the screaming and cursing, none of it was Ashley. It was all her brain tumor. Monica. And I have a vague memory of getting out of the ambulance in a wheelchair in the ambulance bay. I was so pissed off. I didn't know what was going on. And they started asking me my the, the questions like, do you know where you are? I was like, I don't know. They're like, do you know what the date is? I was like, I don't know. They're like, can you make a guess? I was like, I don't know. <laughs> and they're like, can you tell me the month? I was like, September. It was February. And I was so pissed off because I was just like, I don't know. I don't know. So there she was in the emergency room at VGH, confused, annoyed, unsure about where she was, why she was there, or even what day it was. She struggled to ground herself in the basics and even lacked a sense of her own identity. Not long after Ashley arrived in the emergency room, she was rushed to a CT scanner where they took images of her brain. They found a lesion, as they called it, and they said it's probably nothing, but we're going to admit her for further investigation. Ah, yes, a lesion. That's medical speak for, hmm, that doesn't look normal. It's probably nothing, but also it could be cancer. Over the course of two, three days, I had an MRI, an EEG, and I met the first neurosurgeon who was the admitting neurosurgeon the night that I came in. And he was the one who first told me that the MRI showed a tumor. I said, well, what do you think it is? Because I said, I'm sure you have an idea. And he said, I think it's an oligodendroglioma. It's in my left frontal lobe. And we can talk about how I feel about that later. And it might have something to do with why you call it Monica. <laughs> might be. <laughs> The frontal lobe of our brain is an essential part of what drives our personalities and behaviors. Damage to the frontal lobe, like the kind of damage that happens when a tumor decides to set up shop in this part of your brain, 
can cause personality changes, inappropriate social behaviors, poor impulse control, emotional lability, and a whole host of other things that can challenge how you show up in the world. For Ashley, who is typically like a perfect combination of Rachel and Phoebe from Friends, she's laid back, carefree, easygoing. Well, this tumor made her a lot more like Monica Geller. Uptight, high-strung, slightly anal-retentive. Personally, my favorite character, because she's a bit like me, if I'm being perfectly honest. But for Ashley, this tumor risked turning her into someone so different from who she truly is. So, what do you do when something in your brain threatens to sabotage your very being? You cut it out. He said, you know, the next step is to do a surgery. And I said, okay, like, like when? Ashley's doctors recommended neurosurgery as a first step to confirm the diagnosis. And let's just take a moment to appreciate that when brain surgery is the first step, you know this shit is serious. And he had an opening in 10 days from, okay. from that date. Whoa, okay, that feels like a long time. Ah. Did it feel like a long time? I If if he was like, when do you want to do it? I would be like, yesterday, get this tumor out of my head. And I was like, all right, I'll take it. I was like, let's let's get going. You're a good patient. I think I'm a pretty good patient. You sound like a really good patient. I would, I would have been like, <laughs> get me a second opinion. I don't care if you're the brain tumor guy. Can you do it right now? But I would have complained like forever. Yeah, and I don't. And sometimes I question myself because I'm like, am I am I too easygoing at times, or <laughs> am I just am I too trusting? Is another question I have sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, but there was something about just his approach. He talked. He sat in a chair. He talked with me. He made sure he made eye contact and talked with my whole family. Eye contact. Key. Key. And just <laughs> it, just his the warmth in his communication was palpable right so you just you you were like no i you're you're talking to me yeah not that's, about me not at me you're talking like with me that's so important and especially huge. especially because he's going to be cutting into your brain yeah so yeah, yeah that's key yeah the night before ashley's surgery it hit her that this was actually really serious this wasn't just an easy surgery this was brain surgery and things might not go as expected. She needed to be prepared for that possibility. And so, being the stellar patient that she is, she pulled together a last-minute advanced care plan. I was prepared, so I made sure I went through all of my banking and account information because I was in charge of that in our relationship. And I went to go give it to my husband at the time and be like, okay, just in case. Because there was a risk. Oh, yes, the, another thing was there was a risk that it could nick the the speech and language center of the brain. Oh, yeah. It's like, okay, I'm going to get all this information ready just in case somebody has to, like, I can't talk or... That's my nightmare. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> I just want, like, everything in order. Right. So I went to go give that to my husband, and he was just like, you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. I'm not going to look at that. You're going to be fine. So I phoned my sister, and I was like, <laughs> Crystal, I'm like, if anything happens... I have this book. It's by my bed. It's got all of my accounting information, all my banking information, all my passwords, everything you need to know. I said, you're going to be making the decisions. <laughs> if I'm a vegetable, unhook me. Don't let me live like that. I was like, I think that pretty much covers it. I'm like, I trust you'll make the decision, the best decision for me. 
Okay, so if you take literally nothing else away from this, just know the importance of identifying your person. This is the person who will speak for you if you can't speak for yourself, the one who has your back and will look out for your best interest if you become seriously ill or, as in Ashley's case, need a big-ass surgery. Your person may not always be your spouse or your kids or your closest family, and that's cool. Just make sure that it's someone who will be able to make decisions for you that you would make for yourself. And don't forget to talk to that person about what your wishes actually are. That's like, that's like the key step of this whole advanced care planning business. The morning of her surgery, Ashley walked the five blocks from her home to Vancouver General Hospital with her family. They said their see you laters, and then she was brought to the pre-operative assessment area. And a flurry of people crowded her. They put in IVs and drew on her neck and head. And Ashley was scared. She was really, really scared. Finally, they wheeled her down to the operating room where she would have her surgery. The scariest part for me, though, was being wheeled from... Because it is nothing like it is on TV. It is like the scariest walk down this like hallway of doom into the <laughs> surgery room, as I call it. And then when I approached the operating theater, Dr. Toyota was outside. And he said, are you okay? And I was like, no. I said, I'm like terrified. And he's like, would it help you if I told you that I wasn't scared? I was like, yes, it would. <laughs> and he's like, I'm not scared. I'm going to take good care of you. How long was your surgery? I think it was two and a half hours. Oh, that's not long. Not long. That's not bad. Yeah. I had no idea what to expect, but I remember my family saying it was really quick. So I think it was about two and a half like fast, hours. Faster than you would expect. Yeah. I think because it's on like the left frontal lobe and it's it's near the surface, right. I think it was an easier... An easier know, one. An yeah. easier one if there is such thing. Right. Yeah. It was the easier of the brain surgeries. <laughs> I'll say that. They didn't have to like dig around or like you know, open my head in half or anything like right. that. So okay. I'd say it was like an easier one. Ashley woke up shortly after her surgery in the recovery room and spent the next several days in hospital. Keep in mind, Ashley is a nurse. She's comfortable in a hospital setting. She understands medical jargon, and she has an idea about what happens behind the scenes in healthcare. But she found herself in this brand new role of patients, and being nursed as a nurse, well, that was an entirely novel experience for her. I won't use the word judge. I never judged what people did. But you kind of assess how they're doing things mm -hmm. and just kind of go, well, you know, I wouldn't have done it that way. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I was pretty, I was, I'm a pretty good patient. And I, I think that I just let, I just kind of let things happen as they, as they needed to happen. And I, like, I'm not an ICU nurse and I'm not, definitely not a neuro ICU nurse. In the morning, I was started to get this pain in my forehead. And I said, I'm having a lot of pain. And he said, well, I just gave you your schedule, pain medication. And I said, well, I'm in pain and I'm asking for more. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. And then he's like, oh, okay. And then he, um, anyways, he brought me that. He pushed it. He was giving an IV push. He pushed it a little too hard, kind of took my breath away. Because I know you have to push things slowly and now I know why. So I've been right. on the receiving end of that. I understand <laughs> it. <laughs> Thank you, nursing instructors. I get it now. <laughs> But okay. uh, yeah, and then I went to the the unit and my stay was very, was pretty good. Again, I was only there for five days and I had one particular nurse that was really good. I just kept having this pain in my forehead and I was like, this is like, I'm like, where is my scar? And they're like, it's up up here. So up in like the left frontal lobe area, like on my 
behind my hairline. And I was like, well, I'm getting this like really bad pain in my forehead. And I had this turban bandaged on. So this big, thick, like three inch bandage around my head. And I said, well, I'm having this pain in my forehead. I was like, this is like not where it should be. And so they got an order to, to take off the bandage. And I had a pressure sore <gasps> on my forehead. No. And because some of my hair had gotten looped in that part. So I had this lovely pressure sore on my forehead. From the bandage from and the, the hair. And the hair, yeah. So that's when they started undoing the bandage. I was like, oh my God. I was like, take it off. And it was like just this pressure relief on In my, my head. head. When you were saying this, you're like, I keep having this pain in my head. And I'm like, yeah, you had Ashley, brain surgery. you just had brain surgery. Yeah. Of course you have a pain in your head. And then she was really good too because I got an order to have a shower. And I, of course, asked my, my husband if he would help me. And he's like, no, I can't. He's he just, <laughs> I think he was just too terrified. And again, I was like, I, I respected that. But I was like, really? Like, I don't want anybody to see me naked. <laughs> and then the nurse is like, Ashley, she's like, you're a nurse. You know what it's like. She's like, let me help you with the shower. I was like, okay. And I still sat there with like my arms like wrapped around my breast, <laughs> but um, she did help me shower and like wash my hair. And it was really, really nice. And she did her best to make me feel comfortable. But I think that was probably the most uncomfortable part of that whole hospital stay was having somebody help me shower. Let's just consider that for a moment, especially those of you who are healthcare providers. The most uncomfortable part of Ashley's hospital stay You know, the hospital stay where they drugged her, put a plastic tube down her throat, cut into her brain, and then sewed her back up again? The most uncomfortable part of her hospital stay was the vulnerable, helpless feeling of having someone bathe her, of being taken care of in a way she never imagined as a young, previously healthy and independent woman in her early 30s. And that experience, the experience of being helpless and at the mercy of another individual for very personal care, that stuck with her, and it's made her a better nurse. I mean, I've always, I've been kind of the type of nurse to really respect people's dignity, but I think just being in their shoes, actually feeling what it's like to have somebody having to do that for you, when everywhere people are helping you for the first time, it can be a bit uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I remember back in nursing school, helping a patient, like this was like when we were like brand new, like baby nurses, like level one. And we had, we were working on a neurology unit and we had a woman who had had a CVA and she was like 60 years old. So very, very young. And we were giving her a bed bath and the nurse that I, the student nurse that I was working with had her kind of quite stripped down. And I just kindly covered her up and only uncovered the bits that we needed to uncover. And and I remember that story because I remember the look in her eyes of just being mortified mm-hmm. that somebody was having to wash her. Yeah. And she couldn't do it for herself and being young yeah. and in fairly good condition except for her CVA mm-hmm. that had, you know, limited her ability to care for herself. And I think we, in healthcare, I think we do our best to be dignified and even you know even when we're doing care but we just sometimes we do have to do things like be a little bit task focused because of time and I and I, I get that but we can do it in a dignified way. Ashley went home on a Friday and she was able to regain some independence her speech was intact her cognition was unaffected overall the rest of her recovery was pretty smooth my recovery was just really good from that point on. I think we were overly cautious. So I always had somebody stand outside the bathroom when I was having a shower. 
I think I had my staples removed after two weeks, I think. And just my GP did that and that went fairly smooth. I was like, I went for a 10K run four weeks after my surgery. Oh my God. So my recovery was really good. Looking back though, I didn't talk about it. Why would she talk about it? The tumor was out. Ashley had an MRI six weeks after her surgery that looked good. It was time to move on, to get back to work, get on with her life. Except there was one little detail that Ashley had been ignoring. I remember saying to Dr. Toyota, I was like, like, are you going to get it all? And he's like, you know, that's not the point of the surgery. And I was like, hmm, because I was like, I don't really understand anything. Mm. And it wasn't until I went back to work and I had access to like better information that I really started to research like my, my tumor and what is it and what are these procedures that they talk of and what does the prognosis look like? Because not once did anybody use the word debulking, cancer, prognosis, like nothing. And I don't know if that's because I didn't ask. I don't know why Ashley's doctors didn't talk about those things, why they didn't discuss her prognosis, why they didn't explain that they couldn't just get it all, why they didn't call it cancer. But what Ashley learned doing her own research was that her brain tumor, while slow growing and part of the least bad of the brain tumors club, it wasn't curable. Because of the way this type of brain tumor infiltrates the surrounding tissue, because of where it was located in her brain, they couldn't just get it all. Ashley was looking at a lifetime of debulking surgeries at random intervals, all dependent on how quickly or slowly Monica decided to grow. Surgeries that, while removing as much of her tumor as possible, would also chip away at her left frontal lobe, threatening to change Ashley in small ways that would add up to big ways over time. This wasn't just a little one-off brain surgery. Ashley will never be free of her tumor. And though coming to terms with this was difficult, explaining it to the people she loved was all the more trying. I think the biggest thing I was looking at is like, what is this thing? Why don't they use the word cancer mm-hmm. for brain tumors? That's a whole thing with brain tumors that I don't understand. So it is a, what they call a stage two because it is a low grade glioma. So it's in this slow growing phase. And when they get to a stage three or four, that's when they kind of may throw in the word cancer. Oh, but I don't, I mean, that's, I, I, I feel bad saying this because I'm like, I'm, I'm being very judgy, but I think they don't ever, I find use the word cancer with brain tumor, even though I'm like, if I'm really laying out what I have, I will call it cancer because I think it's important for the people in my life to know that I talk a bit more about it now because I'm just more comfortable with it, but I think it's important that people know that this is something that I will one day die from. Mm. Maybe something else, but most likely it's going to be my brain tumor. And that might have been something that I always knew, but I don't think anybody else really knew. Maybe my sister, Mm. but nobody else did. And I found that out because I remember having like one-off conversation with my mom and having to tell her. And I also remember my husband at the time 
being like, they've got it. Like it's gone. Like you're fine. And I was like, do you understand what I have and the impact that has on my life? Hmm. And I had to also have that same conversation with him and be like, this will come back. The nature of this disease is that it will come back. They don't just get it all. It's not like TV where they're like, we got the whole thing. Right. It's like, that's not the way that cancer works. And I, it was like really, and I think that's something that I, I'm talking about now because I am, I'm empowered by what I have and empowered by the way that I've handled it. But it wasn't something that I think I fully grasped the concept of at the time, even though I knew, like I knew in the back of my mind, I wasn't in full on denial, but I, I always knew the big picture of what I had and the trajectory and what it's going to look like eventually. But I noticed that the more I talked with my loved ones, they didn't really get it. So Ashley is learning to carry this knowledge, the knowledge of her brain tumor and how it impacts her day-to-day life, how it will likely be the cause of her death. And she has to negotiate all of the bits in between, the parts that will take up the space between then and now. And she doesn't just carry this knowledge for herself. She holds it for her family, for the people who love her so dearly that they can't stand to carry the truth for themselves. Since Ashley's diagnosis, her life has categorically changed. For one, her relationship with her husband ended. Monica, her brain tumor, maybe wasn't the only reason for their breakup, but she played a pretty big role. My ex-husband didn't, he couldn't talk about it. And the part of me that always tries to see things from another person's perspective, I just, I got that. And it got to a point though where I needed him to be there for me and he couldn't. And I wanted him to be there for me because I loved him so much. And I think he loved me too, but he just couldn't, he couldn't do that. And the interesting thing about that relationship is that I think we had a really great connection and he'll always hold a place in my heart, but I think he was like almost afraid of death. And it's like such a weird situation to, to be married to a palliative nurse and somebody who is going to die from a brain tumor. And he, also had experienced so many deaths in his life. And it was almost like, I think there was almost a part of him that was like, I I just can't, I can't do it. And that's okay. It's really sad, but reflecting back on it and hearing the little bits that I have, I believe it impacted it in a huge way because he couldn't, he just, he didn't want to talk about it. He one time said, when I did try to be like, no, we have to talk about it. And I brought it up and I said, I am going to die from this and I need you to be there for me. And I need you to talk about it with me. And he used the words, don't make me pity you. Hmm. And that really hurt, but it also gave me insight into what he was maybe going through. And so I think it it was just, and uh, there's big things in the, the more that I'm learning about relationships, like Death and illness are are huge. They can be huge breaking points for a relationship. And it's really sad that that played a big part of probably why our relationship ended. And I think I know that. And I, I, I think maybe he does. I don't know. But it is. And it, it needed to happen. And I'm almost glad that it's happened now. Mm-hmm. It does make me scared to date again because I'm terrified of like 
I know that that's going to be like, you always talk about what are your non-negotiables in a relationship. And I kind of go like, well, need to have somebody who's going to be able to be there with me through that Mm -hmm. and be by my side and really understand things from my perspective and hold my hand and come to my appointments and come sit in the MRI waiting room while I'm having my scan and just really be there for me. It's so easy to listen to this and think, wow, this dude is such an asshole. What about the whole in sickness and in health till death do us part clause in the contract of marriage? But I think it's really important to highlight, as Ashley has done, that for some people, for many people, actually, dealing with a loved one who is seriously ill is not just a lot. It's too much. And that's okay. It doesn't make them inherently bad, even though it's easy to tell ourselves stories that state otherwise. And for Ashley, she's grown to realize that at the end of the day, their separation, while sad and entirely worthy of grief, maybe was for the best. So at what point in a relationship... Is it the third date that you tell them you have a brain tumor? I don't know. (laughs) This is something that I was even thinking about. I was like, when do I tell somebody? (laughs) Like, I don't, I haven't dated in like so long because I was like, my last relationship was like nine years. So you just kind of go like, holy shit, like I have to do this all over again. (laughs) When everything was happening with the end of my relationship in the last six months, one of my fears is going like, oh my God, like I have to like tell somebody about this (laughs) and like that's finding somebody in my life that's going to be able to actually take care of me is so important so what does your tinder profile look like oh no i no i I, I can't i I show my tumor i show my scar (laughs) Scar, right right there that's like it's like can you handle this loves Um, long walks on the beach also has a brain tumor also has a brain tumor seizure (laughs) risk If you can't handle it, swipe, whatever. Swipe left. (laughs) Yeah, swipe left. (laughs) A few years had passed since Ashley's initial surgery, and so much in her life had changed. She had finally started to come to terms with living with her brain tumor. She was trying to regain her footing after her marriage fell apart. And just as she was beginning to resurface after hitting the proverbial rock bottom, Ashley found herself back in her neurosurgeon's office where he told her in no uncertain terms that Monica was back. And so I went and he told me, he showed me my scans and he kind of like, I could tell he was like assessing my reaction. And again, I was like, so, so what's the plan? (laughs) (laughs) And he said that he would recommend another surgery and uh, basically another surgery this year. And he gave me the option of like when I would want that to happen. And I said, well, not now. I said, I am just gone through a very... (laughs) speedy divorce. And I said, I have a life to live. So I said, if this is like slow growing, I said, what are my options? And so we came to a compromise that I'd have another scan in July. So another MRI in July, and that we would make a plan for surgery in the fall. Ashley made a decision that a lot of people had a hard time grasping, myself included. She decided to wait rather than jump to get another surgery as soon as possible a surgery that would dramatically impact her life for at least several weeks, if not months. Instead, she got honest with herself about what mattered most to her as she faced the next few months. She traveled. She trained for a marathon. She healed in the wake of the shittiest year of her life. She gained perspective. 
she cultivated a new strength that allowed her to face what was coming her way with a resilience she never knew she had before. People are like, how do you feel? What's going on? Like, and I'm just like, I feel fine because I can't change anything. I can't change what the next 10 years are going to look like until tomorrow comes. I can't change the fact that I have to have an MRI and then I'm going to have to have another surgery. And I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know what that MRI is going to look like. And I just have to continue to live my life until I get those answers. And I choose not to invest my time worrying about something that I can't, I can't change. While Ashley has worked to accept her current circumstances, it doesn't change the fact that the circumstances, quite frankly, suck. She now knows that the only way to move forward is to allow herself to sink into her own sadness from time to time, to allow space to grieve freely, not only for the losses she's already experienced, but also for the ones she anticipates down the road. I think coming out the other side of everything, I'm able to lean into the unknown and accept things as they are and be present in my life. And it's something that I've always valued, but I'm really coming to live by those values and understand what that means finally in my life. And it's been like the shittiest six months of my life for so many reasons. And I think there was just, it was something, it was just a day where I just woke up and I was like, well, it can't, can't fix anything and I'm just going to lean into this. And I have been more myself lately than I have been in many years. And I have been living life more in the moment than I have in many years. I'm an anxious person. I overthink everything. And I'm just really embracing just being present and being in the moment. And that's what I mean by really understanding what that actually means, finally. The tragic irony in all of this is that Ashley feels more herself than she has in years because she's had to reconcile life with a tumor in her brain's left frontal lobe, a tumor that threatens the very self she's come to love and accept. You know, one of the really maybe more morbid sides of the way I think is like, I'm like, fuck, this brain tumor is in that the most, the part of my brain that makes me who I am and the part of myself that I love the most is my personality and the way that I think. And to know that one day that's going to be impacted to me is like really unfair. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why I'm like, well, I need to just share that side of me because I want people to remember that part of me because I've seen people with advanced brain tumors in the palliative realm and it's really sad when you have their loved one being like, that's not who they are. Even, even my husband at the time when I had my seizure and I was post-ictal and he was like, that, that, I'm, I'm really sorry. He was apologizing to the paramedics. He's like, I'm really sorry. That's not who she is. She doesn't ever talk like that. And the paramedics are probably like, it's fine. Like, this is our job. It's okay. But he was just mortified because of how I was talking and I was swearing and I was like, is that how I'm going to be at the mm -hmm. end? And I think I kind of go, well, I want... I want to make sure people remember the good parts of me. That's yeah. such an interesting thing that you've mentioned and something I would have never mm -hmm. thought of because you think like, and in our world in palliative care, we see people at the end stages all the time. Mm -hmm. And it, it reminds us to live life well and to live in the moment and to be present. And it reminds us that like one day we will, we will die. Like one day we will no longer exist. Yeah. But for you, it's this added layer of like the piece of me that is me 
is battling against this tumor. Yeah. And and that's like it's not it's about death but it's also about like losing yourself. Yeah. And for me I'm like I know that is inevitable and that's like I can be really realistic about this with certain people and I'm like I know that's inevitable and I think it's why I'm like I just want to in this moment of my life right now I'm like I want to be who I am and figure out who I am and I want to like share the vibrant side of myself because I'm like I want that to be the lasting memory for people. Mm -hmm. So many of us try to escape who we truly are in pursuit of the person we think we should be. We spend so much of our time and energy trying to change. We try to change our bodies, our minds, how we show up in the world, and we usually call it self-improvement or pass it off as a wellness endeavor. But most of us have never been faced with the real possibility of losing our actual self. The parts that make us us, the parts that are housed in our left frontal lobes, where, for Ashley, a slow-growing tumor named Monica lives. I am not afraid to die. I'm afraid of not living the life I wanted to live. I'm not somebody who's like, I have to do all of these things before I die, but I'm like, I want to be the person I want to be and live the life that I want to live up until the very end. But I'm not afraid to die. I am afraid that I'm not going to fulfill being the woman that I want to be. Nothing crystallizes the importance of something like the threat of losing it. Ashley knows this perhaps better than anyone. And while we can't minimize the significance of her tumor and where it's located in her brain, the real truth is that Ashley is more than her left frontal lobe. Who Ashley is, who we all are, is more than a tiny corner of our brain. Ashley's being courses through her DNA, in every cell of her body, in the graceful, subconscious ways she shows up in the world. And that's the truest part of herself she's discovered since her diagnosis. No matter what happens between now and whatever fate has in store for Ashley, that's the part that will live on. That's the legacy she'll leave for all of us. Even today, here, now, I can say that I am grateful for every experience that has brought me to where I am today because it has made me who I am today. And it's made me a stronger woman. It's made me a stronger human. It's made me even more compassionate than I already am. And again, it's everything that's kind of cumulatively happened to bring me where I am today. It's helped me get through these last six months to be where I am in this moment. That's it for episode three of Talk Dying to Me. A huge thank you to Ashley Doty for sharing her story with us and being an all-around gem of a human. 
Thanks as well to Resonate Recordings for doing all of the post-production work, which I am exceptionally bad at, so I'm very grateful that they're involved. Thank you to Wiki Turton for our beautiful cover art. This episode was written and produced by me, Lauren Daly. For more episodes of Talk Dying to Me, subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I look forward to seeing you next time, and don't forget, one day, you're gonna die. <laughs>